Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Good afternoon. How's it going? Good. If you've got your copy of the scriptures, turn or scroll or whatever you do to Ephesians chapter four, that's where we're going to be. Before we go there, I want to tell you a recent dad fail story. Would you be up for that? So last weekend, Lauren and I took the kids to Old Navy to get clothes for growing kids in a coming cooler season. And so uh, I had the youngest two with me. They were asleep in the car and uh, they woke up. And so I did not want to be confined in a cell, cell with them. And so we got out of the car, loaded everybody up and uh, went into the store. So I got Eli, he's in his car seat and that like sits right nicely on top of a cart. And then I've got Evelyn, she's three and a half. And, uh, and so I go to place her in another cart. She gets her own very separate cart. And, uh, and so I go to put her in like, you know, the front part where the legs go through and all that. So I try to get her to work her legs through and the way her legs are going and I'm placing, it doesn't quite line up. And so I'm like, okay, we've got to start again. So I go to pick her up to start again. Well, you know, those carts are made of like wire and they're like all welded together. Well, one of the pieces of wire catches her on the back of her pants. And so we're in the middle or the front middle of of Old Navy and I go lifting her up and her pants and her underwear go with her. And there I am holding my three and a half year old bare naked in the air in the middle of Old Navy. And I look around and man, you don't want to look around in those moments. And I see the young ladies behind the cashier and they're just like laughing, cracking up, but like trying not to be loud about it. The truth is Evelyn does not care one bit. So she was not embarrassed. Um, But yeah, there's my recent dad fell story. I have many more. If you want to talk about dad fells, I've got plenty of them. Um, Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So uh, another confession. Uh, Growing up, I had this perspective on on pastors, on church leaders, that they were kind of like the, the spiritual heroes and champions and that the church like was like, their fans and their uh, patrons, essentially. And then I became a, a church leader, and I realized that's obviously not true. Um, but the, the truth is, what I, what I realized is that we had like this mentality in the church where like the most spiritual people are the people that are up front teaching, speaking, leading worship, and that kind of stuff. And then that everybody else is like cheering them on, listening, receiving, and then going about life as normal. But the reality is, is that if anybody's the cheerleader, it's the, it should be the person standing here. And if anybody is living out the real stuff, it's actually the church, the body of believers. And when we recognize how good God is and how much grace he puts on our individual lives, we won't want to live any other way. 
And I believe that so often we turn it backwards, and that's what religion does, right? It likes to disempower the church um, so that we just play religious games. And what God really has for us is, is that, it would, that we would flip the script on that and that we would actually start to see that the role of the church is not simply to gather and hear a good message and maybe learn some things that tickle our brain, but instead that we're supposed to be launched out of here so that we see the kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. And that's really what Paul's desire was for not just the church in Ephesus, though we'll look at them, but for the church. I believe that's God's desire for the church. Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's actually considered a circular letter. It's a letter that's going to be sent around to other churches. So he's not rebuking them. He's actually uh, cheering them on and instructing them and saying, hey, this is the way that you should live. This is the way that you should go for it. And so um, I love the book of Ephesians. I think it is uh, one of Paul's greatest letters in my mind, and I think that you should spend some time in Ephesians and get to know it really, really well. It will change uh, the way that you live and look at church and life. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, as a prisoner for the Lord, we're going to stop there. Paul recognizes this. He's writing this from a prison cell, but I don't believe that he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord because he's in a prison cell for doing the Lord's work. I believe he's calling himself a prison, a prisoner for the Lord because of the way that he is bound to Christ. You see, another word for prisoner is actually bondservant. And I believe this, that Paul lived on a two-man chain gang and the other man on that chain was Jesus, that he lived so bound, so yoked to Jesus that he considered his life as nothing and he was going to do whatever Jesus was doing. Wherever Jesus stepped, that's where he stepped. Whatever Jesus uh, did, he did. He was tied, connected to Jesus. And so, the reality of the Christian life is this. We enter into it by making the confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, we don't tend to think in terms of lordship in American culture because we don't have lords, right? But the idea of a lord is a master that you are fully devoted to. And so to confess that Jesus is Lord is not simply to say that he is like this awesome guy, and he's all right, and I'm going to go about life the way that I would like to go about life. But as soon as you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is that his way becomes my way, and wherever he goes, I go. Whatever he does, I do. That's a big mind shift for us because so often we think I'm going to give him 10%. I'm going to give him a little bit of my life, and now I'm going to have my life back to normal. Let me join the Bless Me Now Club and move on, right? But instead, Paul realizes this, that he is a prisoner of the Lord, and then he goes on essentially to urge the churches in his day and the churches throughout all time to live in, the, in a similar way. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The word calling is a significant word because it means a few things. One, the word calling is actually could be translated through Latin to vocation, meaning that you would live a life worthy of the vocation that you have received. 
And that causes us to think very differently about vocation than we've probably thought about it before. Because here's the reality. My vocation is not pastor. Your vocation is not doctor, construction worker, nurse, H-E-B checker outer person. That's not your vocation. Your vocation is not simply the job that you do, but it's actually a response to the call that somebody else has made for your life. You don't get to choose your own vocation because vocation is calling and you can't call yourself. You hear me? You don't get to choose your own vocation because vocation is calling and you can't call yourself. I love what Tim Keller writes. He says, a job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person. As we talk about calling, so often we tend to think about it in terms of self-fulfillment. Like, I really want to live this fulfilled life. And let me be the first to say, I want to live a fulfilled life. But when we think about callings in terms of self-fulfillment and self-realization, we've started in the wrong place. You see, your calling is not to be fulfilled. Your calling is to respond to the one that's called you and to do whatever he has called you to do. When we start getting into this humanistic thinking of how can I live the most fulfilled life, we will always be self-deceived and miserable. Look at the life of Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, towards the end of his life, because he was living for himself, was absolutely miserable. He wrote... Ecclesiastes, not because he had great wisdom, but because he had great misery. His sayings that everything is meaningless was not a reality. It was the reality of his perspective. Why? Because he was living unto his own calling instead of the calling of the Lord. He left the Lord's calling, and so he found himself miserable. It's impossible to, to make your own self-fulfilling destiny, Jesus instead gives us another way. He says it in Matthew 16, 25. It says this, for if you choose self-sacrifice and lose your lives for my glory, you will continually discover true life. But if you choose to keep your lives for yourselves, you will forfeit what you try to keep. Let me say this, responding to the call of God on your life is the only way to find fulfillment. But it cannot be for fulfillment that we respond to his call because we will always miss the depths of pain and sacrifice that are in the call that he has that mature us and grow us into a place of receiving real fulfillment. And so often we live self-centered lives and say, let me discover everything about me so I can be all that I can be. Instead, the words of Jesus would be simple, die. 
die. Die to your expectations of grandiose living and, and all of these things that we want. And when we do that, we find that we'll live the most fulfilled life ever. But you can't die halfway. You've got to say, Jesus, whatever you want, that's what I'll do. Let me say this, that his lordship of your life will always be better than your lordship of your life. And so when you say yes to him, what you'll find is fulfillment and you'll find destiny that you could never have written for yourself. But the only way to get there is full, wholehearted trust and devotion. Not just kind of checking things out. It's, it's all or nothing. But I believe this, that everybody has a call. For some of us, there is a call that continues to echo over our heads until we respond to it. Others of you have said, yes, I'm all in. But I believe this, that every person who has said yes to Jesus has a significant call on their lives. And God is saying, hey, will you step into this destiny? I believe this also, that if you've never said yes to Jesus, that there is a call and a destiny for you that starts with, yes, I'm all in. And I believe this, that part of that call is to full-time ministry. You say, well, I don't really know if I want to be called to full-time ministry. That's the reality of the call. You see, everybody's called to full-time ministry. Some of us get paid by the church. Some of us get paid by the, the hospital or the contractor or by the customers or however we get paid, but we're all called to full-time ministry. It's not a hat that we put on part-time. It's not, it's not something that we do on Saturday mornings or, or, or mission trips or whatever else we do, but we're all actually called to full-time vocational ministry. It's the call of God on our lives, and we live it out as doctors, as plumbers, as politicians even, if it were possible. It is, by the way. But we live it out in all these ways, but we're all actually called. Saying yes to Jesus is a call to vocational ministry, full-time ministry. Some of us do it inside of the church. Most of us do it outside of the church. But you're called. Say, I'm called. I'm called and I'm happy about it. Tell your neighbor, I'm called. And so are you. All right, let's continue. Verse two, we're gonna read through two through uh, six pretty quick. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, say one body, and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's what Paul is saying, essentially. Recognize that we're in this thing together and we have to love each other. Our unity is crucial. There's this thing going around, I don't know if it's new or been going around throughout the ages, but there's this idea that it's possible to love Jesus and not the church. 
And I get it, like the church is not always mature, but the church is the body of Jesus on the earth. And so if you love Jesus and not the church, you're actually confused. Let me say this, there are things about the church that need to change, absolutely. We don't need to turn a blind eye to that. However, it's impossible to love Jesus and not the church because they're actually the same thing. Another way to look at it is to say that I I love Jesus and not his wife. The church is both the body, we'll see this in just a minute, of Jesus on earth, of which he is still the head, by the way, but it's also the bride of Christ. And and, and when we say, hey, if somebody said to me, Joel, I really, really like you, but I can't stand your wife. Oh man, I would be devastated because the problem is we're one. Can't separate us. And so, some of us need to fall back in love with the church because the church is where we live the most powerful lives. It's, 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 the, it's us, it's who we're called to be. Hating the church is also a form of self-hatred because you are part of the church, whether you like it or not. Verse seven, this is where we'll camp out. It says, but... To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Pretty simple. There is grace on your life. It says this, to each one of us, the Greek word there, this is, I believe, one of the most important Greek words in the Bible. The Greek word there is hekasto. Say hekasto. Now you speak Greek about as well as I do. Hekasto is this. It means to each and every one of us. It doesn't mean to some of us. But it says, to each and every one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That means this, that there's grace on your life. There is a a superpower that you have been given by God. There is a specific grace on your life that reflects his character and his image in a unique way that only you can reflect him. It says, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That means this, that you don't just have the same grace that everybody else has. That word apportioned could could mean this, that you have a custom-made grace on your life. There's a grace that fits specifically the calling that you have. You see, the grace on your life supports who God has created you to be. Your superpower, your grace supports your calling. And we know this about grace. We've talked about this before. Grace is the empowering presence of God to be who he created you to be and do what he created you to do. There's a specific grace on your life that is about supporting the calling that you have. Your grace, your superpower is activated and empowered by your faith. Romans 12, 6 says, if someone is to prophesy, let them prophesy in accordance or in, in response to the measure of faith that they have. This means this, that you could have the most phenomenal, incredible grace on your life, like these incredible superpowers to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to see into the future, all sorts of stuff. But if you don't have faith for it, it will not happen. If you don't, and here's the thing about faith. Faith is not a spiritual substance that we try to muster up from within us. 
But faith is relational trust in the God who is near us and in us. And so when we recognize that our faith actually grows in response to our intimacy with Jesus. Faith is not earned. It's not performance. It's not something that, that, um, that you have to like make happen. But instead, faith comes by hearing, by knowing, by, by being close to God. And faith is not earned by good behavior. The truth is that the church is riddled, the Bible is riddled with stories of people who had far from perfect lives who did incredible acts of great faith. Why? Because their faith was not about their behavior. It was about their intimacy, their trust in who God is in them. You see, we get, we get frustrated when we see, you know, these super preacher folks fall and it's like, how are they doing those incredible miracles, all that stuff? How are they doing all this stuff behind the scenes? And yet they're, they're living this way. Well, because it has nothing, about, nothing to do with behavior. Now, I'm not condoning their behavior, but what I'm saying is it has everything to do with trust in God. And the truth is, is that you're the grace, the superpower that you carry thrives in oneness with Jesus. Galatians 5, 6 says, what counts is this, faith expressing itself in love. So the grace on your life, the superpower, the, the power of God resting on your life, what counts is that it's actually expressed in love. It doesn't mean that it can't be expressed through other means, but if it's not expressed in love, then it's actually illegal. If you're trying to see God move in order to build yourself up, you've missed it. If you're trying to, move, to see God move, you're praying for people, you wanna see people one to Jesus so that you could build your reputation, that's, that's illegal, it's off limits. That's, that's not the way that God intends for us to use the grace that's on our lives. Paul writes to, to Timothy, who is his spiritual son in 2 Timothy 1.6. Let me go there real quick. I had it in my head and then it ran off. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan, the, fan into flames the gift of God or grace of God, same word, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here's the reality about the grace, the very gifting in you, is that you have a responsibility to fan it into flames. God's entrusted a, a, a piece, an aspect of who he is to you, and it is your responsibility to steward that and actually to fan that into flames. Now, those of us around you can encourage you, can support you, can breathe on the, on the flames, but it's your responsibility. The reality is, is that your spiritual growth is your responsibility. That your accountability to the calling on your life is your responsibility. We can help you with it, but that's your responsibility to carry. Verse eight, 
This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who, uh, who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That's incredible. There is so much there and we're gonna keep moving on. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Have we done that yet? Have we attained to the full measure of Christ? No. There is this argument that we don't need apostles, prophets, evangelists, we don't need any of that. That was like for a time in the past. The reality is if that, if what they were created to do hasn't been done, then we still need them. Amen? Here's what's interesting. Hakosto, right? To each and every one. You see, we tend to think of these as like these high and lofty titles and positions in the church. The truth is that's what religion does. Religion celebrates form over function. Religion looks for offices and titles instead of people to get in the trenches and serve. And so when we think about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, we will want it to be somebody else high and lofty. Why? Because that means that I'm not responsible to live in that way. Hakosto to each and every one, everybody gets to play. Here's what I believe this text is saying, that to each and every one, grace has been given, and then it lists the graces that have been given. That means that you have a grace on your life, and it looks like your own very unique flavor of grace, but it has an aspect, an element of the apostolic, of the prophetic, of the evangelistic, that you actually have a grace on your life to live that out. Amen? What that does not mean is that you need to go get a business card printed that says, I'm Apostle Emily, <laughs> right? Like that's ridiculous. Yet the church, when we get into religious thinking, we think, oh, I've got this gift and now I've got to build a ministry out of it that everybody else can get on board and support and be my fans with. That's not the point. The point of that grace on your life is that you would be able to equip to show and train others how to live under that unique calling, that unique grace. Years ago, I was leading a college ministry at Texas State and I realized this, that not only did I not know how to share the gospel as somebody paid to do like church leadership ministry, but my whole ministry, none of us knew how to share the gospel. We'd see people come to our meetings, say yes to Jesus, but we could not share the gospel with somebody on the streets to save our lives. So you know what I did? I found an evangelist. I found a guy, some of you know him, a guy named Peter Dusan. Peter Dusan is like a super evangelist. Like he would get us all saved if he was here. Even if you're already saved, you get saved again. And so I started spending time with Peter and his guys and I learned how to share the gospel. And I start, in fact, 
Justin, who was jumping up and down over here, got saved in those days because I learned how to share the gospel and I learned how to train other people to share the gospel and the people that I was training saw him one to Jesus. And so the gift on your life is meant to be shared. The superpower that you have is actually meant for you to move into maturity, but also for the church to move into maturity. And whatever you're lacking is not an excuse to say, God, you didn't give me that grace, but instead to recognize that he actually gave you that grace in the form of a person outside of you who's probably sitting in this room right now. And if you would learn to submit yourself and humbly say, hey, I I don't know. Years ago, when I was a lot younger, I was like 17, I, at the church I was in, a, a prophet came into town. This guy was like reading people's mail. He told my uncle who was visiting, he like told him all about his life, had never met him before. It was crazy, my mind was blown. He stands me up and he says, young man, what's your name? I said my name. I've got the, this on tape, tape, by the way. Um, <laughs> and he says, a zeal for the Lord will soon consume you and you'll have a prophetic voice that breaks strongholds. I had no idea what that meant. And the reality is, is that the place I was in had no idea how to train me and how to live that out. And it took took me getting connected with Kenny and Diane and Jeff and Julie Riddle to learn what it looks like to hear God's voice and declare it to others. You see, there was actually grace on my life. That guy saw it, but it took somebody else knowing how to live that out in order to cultivate that inside of me. And I think it's quite honestly a a sad report on the church that somebody would stand a 17-year-old up and he'd have to wait 15, 16, 17 years to learn how to use the gift that somebody else saw in him. And the truth is we have incredibly gifted people in our church that need to be activated. And it means that we learn how to be equipped and grow in the very call of God on our lives. So you're called to full-time ministry. You have a superpower, a custom-made grace for your calling and you have a kingdom family to equip, equip you in your calling so that you can look like Jesus. That's the end game. The end game is that individually and collectively, we would look more like Jesus. It's not even to build a bigger church. It's not to build my own ministry. It's not to impress people with the grace of God on my lives, but instead it's for us, for me and you to look more like Jesus. And we're not there yet. We've got some growing to do, but I believe that Paul, when he says this in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge, and that word knowledge is uh, experiential relational knowledge of the son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I don't believe that Paul was intending for that to be for another time. I believe that's supposed to be for our time. As much as it was about his time, it's about our time. And I believe that God is raising up a mature people that are going to reflect Christ to the world around us. Amen. Would you stand?
believe this. I believe that God wants to begin to minister to you and he actually is just, he wants to do it to you right where you are. Would you close your eyes? Would you, if you can say this with sincerity, can you say, God, I wanna know my calling. God, would you show me what I've been called to? And just take a minute and let him begin to minister to you. God's not trying to make it hard. He's not trying to play hide and seek with you. Now put your hands out in front of you. I believe God wants to both give and reveal to you the grace that's on your life. Just begin to thank him for being good. shirt right here. What's your name? Eric. Oh, that's Eric. I just felt like God said that there is a a call on your life to teach, but it's like hands-on, like getting in the trenches with people and teaching them and that it's going to impart incredible life as you just respond to that. Tim Brown's sister, can't remember your name right now. Ginger. Ginger, I believe that there is a call on your life this big. It has everything to do with love. I believe he's just wired you to care for people and he's given you a really, really big heart. 
and that He wants to activate that in this season. I just declare over your life that you're needed and that you're really valued and important. God, we just thank you for your love for us. You're really good. So Lord, I thank you for this family, Lord, that you're building us up, that you're equipping us, that you're preparing us for the good works that you've set in front of us to do. And Lord, I thank you for your voice, for the leading of your spirit. And Lord, I thank you for a body of believers that are in this thing together. Lord, we ask that you would mature us, that you would grow us to look more like you. Jesus' name, amen. As we close, I, uh, our ministry team's gonna be up front, and I've just had this strong feeling for the last few days that there are people who have been suffering under medical conditions for a long time, and that God wants to bring breakthrough in your life. Um, we've seen God over the years do crazy stuff, like heal things like dyslexia, all that, just ears open, all that kind of stuff. And I just really feel like this evening, God wants to touch you in a radical way. And so our, our team would love to pray with you. If you have any need though, they, they would love to pray with you. Even if you just say, I need prayer and I don't even know why, they would love to pray with you. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to what God unveils in us and unleashes through us as we continue to follow him in the grace that's on our lives. I love you. I hope you have a great week.